Well, I think it's 9.15, we can get started. Thank you for coming. What I've given you in the little syllabus or handout covers 80 years of Adventist history, but there's some other introductory material as well as reference material. So don't think we're gonna go through all 25 pages. Um, usually I spend about 10 hours going through this and we have three. So we're gonna have to summarize and hit the highlights. My name is Fred Bischoff. I'm working with Adventist Pioneer Library, which is a ministry or service of Light Bears Ministry in Oregon. Um, if you don't know about us, we're on the web. You can check out our website. Um, we have an exhibit here as well. Uh, come talk to us. Sometimes people think because we've published a lot of the pioneers, we've read them all, we know it all, we don't. Um, history is a huge, <laughs> history is a huge complex thing. There's all types of people and events. And, uh, I've become convinced you need a tour guide. Um, there's too much to see, there's too much to look at, there's too much to read. You need a tour guide to guide you through it. Do you know who your tour, tour guide is? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all the truth. And so we need his help this morning, too. I can try to help you with some things, but only the Holy Spirit can really bring it home to you and to your heart, which is where it needs to be, right? More than up here, it needs to be in this part of you that we, we tend to think about. So let's begin with prayer and ask him to be with us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to do what we're going to do today with your blessing, with your mercy, uh, to go through and review some history we ask for your spirit to guide us, to explain to us the simplicity that's in Christ, the battle that the universe is in, and also to make application to our own hearts and lives. What is it you want us to do? What do you want me to do as an individual? Guide us each into that process. We thank you for who you are and the fact that you are leading, you are guiding and that you have promised a future that is much, much different than what we have here. Guide us in understanding the principles involved, the details of the history that we may learn, and as we heard earlier this morning, that we can understand what it means to return. And as the motto for the meetings say, to receive what you have to give us, to understand what you have already given us, and then to run with that, and be a blessing to others, to hasten your kingdom, uh, teaching us what our mission is today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you go to page 15, I'm going to use that as a way to sort of preview and to summarize what we're going to do. We have three hours, and we have about 15 pages. So that means about five pages an hour or about a page every 10 minutes or 12 minutes, okay? So that's moving right along. That's just sort of giving you a, a, a summary of what we have. We're going to look at um, the introduction, I would, I would say, is pages one and two. So we have about, what, 20 minutes for that? Um, 
And that will be a setting for what the Advent movement is all about. Um, we're focused on that part of history, hoping it, helping it to, to come alive to you. Then the next, the next section, actually in hour one, we want to do that, plus pages three to five. And if you look at the dates on those pages, those are actually going to be the 1830s to the 1850s. Okay? That's what we're going to be doing in, in those, that section. So this will be hopefully the first hour we can do that. In the second section, we're going to be looking at the 1860s the 70s, the 80s, and what's, what took place during those decades into actually, this is not a good one, let me just switch over to another one here, 1860s, to actually, if you want to look at the actual Page six covers from the 1860s to the 80s. And then if you look at page 10, we're already down to what dates? Let's see. Eight, 18, 1890s begins what? 1890s begins actually on page 7. So this is page 7 to page 10. We're going to do the 90s up to 1903. And that's going to be our second section. Second session together. Our third session is going to be Pages 11 and 12, which is going to be 1904 to 1910, and then we're going to do pages 13 to 15, which is a summary, and that will be our third session. Okay, just a preview for where we're headed. Um, ready to dive in? Okay. Hopefully you like a story. And a story has a timeline, right? Doesn't mean you have to tell the story always in order. Sometimes you'll do what we call flashbacks, uh, or you'll get to a point and you'll need to cover something in more detail that wasn't covered before. But I really do like timelines. Um, one time, not too long ago, I went through and I decided to, in the Bible to put the big pictures of the Bible in, in order. You know, here's the kings of Israel and Judah, and here's the prophets that prophesied during their things. And then I realized a lot of the books of the Bible are names of prophets, right? And so I began to highlight the books of the Bible as to where they fit in that. And I finished with that thing, and I thought... 
why didn't I do this years ago? All of a sudden I know where everything fits now. Or if I don't, I can go back at what I did and I say, oh, there's where that prophet was. In fact, we just heard about Hosea. Um, apparently he spanned a long period, longer than I realized. Um, and maybe I need to expand his part on that timeline as to who he, whose reigns he overlapped and who he ministered to. But it begins to become meaningful when you see the sequence of events that are there. Um, don't know how many of you are into genealogy, trying to figure out your own family timeline. Um, interesting when you do that. Uh, find out some things maybe you didn't know. Uh, I believe that the more we learn about our history, whether it's our church history or the world's history or our family history, what are the lessons that we can learn? <laughs> you learn more about who you are. You may find the strengths and the weaknesses of your family, right? And if anything, you should find out more about your need for God, right? What, what the role is there. So in diving into this, to start with, the importance of the past we cannot underestimate. Actually, the, the past is our identity. And the statement that I would focus on, although it's just one brief, incomplete sentence, is the one there, third item under the importance of the past. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget. And what is it you might forget? Not what you need to do in the future, because you may not even know that yet, but you forget the way the Lord has led, past tense, right? And his teachings in our past history. Um, not too many people that I know know the background for that statement. Why was it written? When was it written? Everything has a story. Um, this was 1892, December, a letter. The letter was sent from Australia to the church headquarters, and they read the entire letter at the general conference session of 1893. And it was not a short letter. And what was she reviewing in the letter? How the early Adventist believers in the 40s and the 50s, and these, what we're going to look at in the story here, how as they, they came to understand what had happened in this Millerite movement and the expecting Christ to come and, and finding out more about the Bible teachings and explaining the prophecies more, how they were led to, there was enough of them eventually, and they had assets. They, they owned a place with a printing press and they were publishing things and it was, they finally were led to organize and form a publishing association and then you know, conferences of churches. You, the churches come together and form what we call a sisterhood or however you want to describe it, the combination of churches. And they were called conferences. And how they were led to develop this organization and this order um, against a lot of confusion and opposition, actually. Some people thought organization was heavy-handed and controlling. Well, it can be. And that is a counterfeit organization, and that is the Babylon that they wanted to come out of. But they realized that in heaven, God has order. 
and there's there's organization and of course it's all built on the principle of what unselfish love and that's the only way it can really operate by the way um, otherwise you have heavy-handed control or you have chaos um, there's no other op options if you look at society in general and so she's reviewing that history in detail and de telling what was happening and the struggle and that's in that context she says we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led in his teachings in our past history uh, that's in the timeline we'll come to that but there's a couple other comments by other people who observe the importance of history you can read those some of them are very this one we probably know the best. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's in the previous paragraph and a little bit more information from uh, some gentlemen here. I, I'm not vouching for the uh, philosophy or the morality of these other men because when you learn about people in history, they usually have uh, problems. But sometimes they'll have a, a brilliant idea and they'll write it down and it will impact history. What do we want to talk about in terms of that uh, overall history? Well, I would want to summarize it down to two principles. And I do that based on the paragraph in the middle of page one. It's a paragraph from the book Education, and hopefully all of you are students, no matter how young or how old you are, right? You're students. And this is talking about the students of the Bible. And the students of the Bible need to understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy. What is contending for supremacy picture? It's a conflict. It's a controversy, we sometimes call it. It's a battle that we're in. Things are, are, are fighting. Do they fight the same way? Well, if they're, if they're very similar, they probably will. But if they're opposites, they don't even fight the same way but they fight, right? Understand the nature of these principles and trace them through history. Maybe that's what we're going to do if we're successful. Trace them through history and prophecy. We could say that's the past and the future. Now, if, if prophecy is fulfilled, is it still prophecy? <laughs> it's, it's become history. <laughs> it's fulfilled prophecy but it's no longer the future. So picture that. There's the past and the future, and we need to trace this through both the past and the future. But we're not in the past or the future. Where are we? We're in the present. But this present point is not stationary. What is the present doing? It's moving through time. There's more and more past, and there's less and less future in that sense. And that's what the next statement is all about. Don't just look at it in the past and the future. Realize that in every act of life, which is where we live, it's right now, today, why you're here in this room, why I'm here in this room, which motive is prompting me? And there's two antagonistic motives. There's two. We're not dealing with 50 principles and 50 motives. We're dealing with two principles, and they are two motives. This is the synonym for them. What are they? Well, she doesn't say what they are at that page in that paragraph. You have to actually look back 30, 40 some pages earlier when she's dealing with the story of Job on page 154, if you want to put that in your handout. And she just, in passing, says, remember the history of Job. He came up in a conversation in heaven, right? Between God and Satan. And God says, have you seen my servant? 
you're coming from earth? Have you seen the fellow I have down there? His name is Job. And he hates evil. He, he's a righteous man. And the devil asks one simple question. Does Job serve you for nothing? What's the implication? You, you bought him. And he's doing it for a selfish motive. You take away what you've given him and you'll see how much he really loves you and serves you. And that's the background for Job. And she says, unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. And then she says, it's the work of Christ and all who identify with him to disprove Satan's claim. What was Satan's claim? That unselfishness does not exist. If it doesn't exist, who is, who is selfish? If unselfishness does not exist, who is selfish? Everyone, including, including God. And that's exactly what the statement is. And she says it's the work of Christ and all who identify with him to disprove Satan's claim. So it's sort of a interesting question. How do you disprove the claim that unselfishness does not exist? Do you just get up and say it does exist? It does exist. It does exist. Is that how you prove it? No, as they say, words are cheap. How did Job prove that unselfishness did exist? Demonstration. Demonstration. He was take all the gifts that God had given him were taken away. And did he still love God? Did he have a major, major struggle? Yes. yes. But did he curse God and die like his wife said to do? No. He couldn't understand what was going on. He didn't know the story behind his story. But he, by faith, hung on, hung in there. And at the end, God says, Job has said what is right of me. So in our confusion and our struggle to understand what's going on, whatever mess we find ourselves in that life brings to us, um, that's basically what we're here, to, to witness to one or the other of these two principles. And that's the simplicity of it. And I submit to you, when you understand that, then you understand exactly why Christ came to disprove Satan's claim. In fact, he said to Pilate when he was on trial, do you remember? Pilate was trying to figure out who Jesus was. I think he's looking at this man. He doesn't look like a criminal. He'd seen a lot of criminals. Can you imagine seeing Jesus? And he was a simple man. He wasn't dressed fancy. But when you looked in his face, did you, did you see anger? Did you see hostility? Did you see hardness? Did you see all the stuff that you might see in a criminal's face? No. Why? Pilate's saying, why do they want to kill this man? They want him dead. What, what's going on? And he's trying to find out, he said, who are you? Are you a king? They're saying you're, you're claiming to be a king. And Jesus said, what? Are you asking that of yourself or, or do you just because the Jews said it? He's wanting to get the Pilate's heart, right? And Pilate said, he, he backed off of the personal thing. And he just basically said, what, what are you here for? And Jesus said, for this cause I was born. John 8 1837, for this cause I was born, for this cause I came into the world, 
for what? You remember what he said to Pilate? To bear witness to the truth. Well, in the context of what we're talking about, what is the truth? Who's telling the truth? The devil or God? Right. And what is the truth about? These two principles. Are there really two? Is there an alternative? The devil said what? There's only one principle, and that is living for yourself. Because if unselfishness does not exist, there's not two principles. There's only one. Everything is built on self-interest, selfishness, and you can mask it however you want to. That's all there is there. And Jesus said, I've come to bear witness to the truth. And that's why earlier he had told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we're headed to the Father's house. That's where I'm going, and then I'm going to come get you. You've read it in John 14, right? And he said to them, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And they said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He just told them where he was going. And he told them he was going to come get him. That was the way, right? But he said an answer to them very simply, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the ladder. Remember Jacob's dream? I'm connecting heaven and earth. If you want to, if you want to go there, I'm the way. I am the truth. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the life. And this is the way God has created things to live. So in those two principles, we have this story, which I have at the very top of the page one. One way that we've summarized the overall story from pre-creation to recreation. Um, the fall, basically, is the beginning of the introduction of this counterfeit principle into the earth into the universe and then how is God dealing with that to where he finally recreates the big arrow is where we are okay so at the bottom I've outlined it a little bit more and I've given you several descriptions of what these two principles are called in the Bible there's only two but there's a lot of ways of describing them and I've given you several unselfishness and selfishness humility and pride giving versus taking the truth versus the lie. That's one I really like in John 8. We just talked about some of those in John. Uh, John 18 and 14. Uh, building on the rock or building on sand. Standing or falling. We have God's kingdom or all the other earthly kingdoms. Babylon is the name of the first of Daniel's four kingdoms. And it's the name and revelation of the final kingdom, fourth kingdom. So we have these two principles. They're, they're fighting ever since the the counterfeit principle came into existence. One is eternal. One has always existed and always will. The other one is a temporary thing. It came into existence. It had a beginning. That's what Jesus said in John 8. He was a murderer from, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. It's the only place I think Jesus refers to the beginning of the great controversy. But if it had a beginning, is it never going to end? Or will it have an end? It will have an end. So that's why I call that the temporary principle. And that's what the prophecies are all about. How God is going to bring this, this temporary principle to an end. Because of all, of all of Daniel's prophecies, where do they lead? To God's everlasting kingdom. 
in which there's only one principle functioning. Everything else is gone, right? But there's a significant sequence of events in the prophecies because you have the earthly kingdoms and what principle are they based on? Selfishness. Because it's nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's I'm there in charge until somebody stronger comes along and knocks me down and puts themselves up. That's just what it's built on. That's Darwinism, right? Survival of the fittest. Um, that's what it looks like to people looking on. That's just the way things operate. But the Bible tells us that's temporary. Um, and you can see all the pain and suffering in the world is based on that. And all the joy is based actually on the, on the genuine eternal principle. And so they're all mingled together in our history and in our lives, right? I read the story of a lady who's in her 90s. She's 99 now. And um, interesting, fascinating story. She was in medical school in Germany in World War II. And her life story she wrote out 20 years ago when she was in her 70s. And there's no organized religion at all in her history. It's really fascinating to read people's stories. But everything in her life that was joy were family bonds, you know, strong family bonds, and everything that was painful in her life were broken bonds, you know, divorce and all that pain. And I'm thinking, there's the two principles. She never found in organized religion the bonds that were stronger than family. Isn't that the Bible pictures? They came to Jesus and said, here's your mother, here's your brothers. And what did he say? Here's my family. Mary was closer to Jesus as her Savior than she was as his mother. So there's stronger bonds, and that's what God's created us for. That's church, right? That should be what church is all about. So we have in this sort of complicated table at the bottom, we have a picture of the battle between these two principles. We're in the, we're in the church part, but we're near the end, according to the prophetic picture, because in the prophetic picture, the conflict comes down to finally a... And a transition where these earthly kingdoms are brought to an end and God's kingdom is set up. I call it a transition because I think it's a very good way of describing it. Every one of Daniel's prophecies deal with that. What is this process? Page 2. It's a transition process. In Daniel chapter 2, how is it pictured? It's a stone cut out without hands. And all of the visions of Daniel give you an, a, a, a clue as to when the transition has begun. Because Daniel says, I watched till. And then something changed. Chapter 2, I watched till a stone was cut out. Chapter 7, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days did sit. Daniel, Daniel 7, it's a judgment scene. Daniel 8, the question is, Tell when the vision, the daily, the transgression of desolation? And the answer was, till evening and morning 2300. So the transition in eight is a cleansing process, a restoration of a sanctuary, a vindication of how God has been dealing with this thing called sin, which is the conflict between the two principles. Chapter eight. Chapter 11 and 12, it's there as well. Look at it. The time prophecies all deal with this transition. Because the time prophecies pointed to the beginning of the transition. The Millerites were going to find, they expected, the time prophecies pointed to what it had. 
That was the date, but what was the event that was supposed to happen? Second coming. Is the second coming the first event of the, of the transition? No. No. What's the first event? The judgment, they thought it was starting here on earth when Jesus comes to earth. But in Daniel 7, we see a picture of a judgment scene. Where is it taking place? It's taking place in heaven, where God is. Okay? And when we tie that together with chapter 8, it's a cleansing process. And they knew what the cleansing of the sanctuary was all about. And on page 2, I've, I've pointed out the sanctuary. The sanctuary process, the sanctuary picture had two, two time dimensions. One was the daily ceremonies. The evening and morning sacrifices. And the evening and morning was not when you came and confessed. That's something that you did whenever you needed to. I don't think you were there every day offering a lamb. There wouldn't be enough lambs if everybody was offering a lamb every day. So I don't know really how often they came to do their personal things when they felt the need for that. But every day there was an evening and morning sacrifice. And every day there was blood, there was burning flesh, there was a pile of ashes there where things had been burned up. But every day there was lights on in the, in the holy place. Incense. Every day there was incense rising. And not just every day, continually. Every, continually on the table of showbread there was bread. So this is God's house, right? The lights are on, the bread's on the table. Picture it in a family setting. This is what it's about. But he's dealing with what? Sin. It's a mess. There's blood. And it's just, if that's all there was the daily, does the sanctuary predict that there's going to be an end to the conflict? In the daily, it does? <laughs> no. Uh, it may show that sin leads to death, but it's just continual death, continual death, day after day after day. Is sin going to be gone and no more death? The daily doesn't show that. What is it in the sanctuary that shows that? The yearly, the yearly, the yearly were events that pre predicted that God was going to step into this mess that was ongoing. He was going to step into it one time and do something. Another day, another festival, another feast day showed he's going to do this and he's going to do this. And those spring festivals were his first coming. The fall festivals basically are the transition at the end. We think of the second coming, but it's more than the second coming. It's, it's the, the pre-advent judgment. It's the post-advent judgment. It's the millennium, right? So this whole process of the yearly events predicted that, oh, it's not going to last forever. God is going to remove this temporary principle of selfishness, and he's going to bring it to an end, and there's going to be his eternal kingdom based on how many principles? One, the eternal principle. The other one's going to be gone. And everybody who wants that temporary principle, will they be there? They won't be there anymore. But there's going to be a process to call everyone in a global way out of that temporary principle into God's eternal principle. And so that transition process involves, before Jesus' coming, a preparation, a ripening of a harvest. Revelation 14 pictures. And he has some people involved with him in that. And that's the Advent movement's history. That's our mission. That's our, our task. To understand that. 
and to be involved with him in that. So that's what pages one and two are attempting to explain. Did they understand exactly the simplicity of that to start with? Apparently not, because they thought that Christ was going to come in 1844. Uh, they didn't understand the sanctuary message, which explains in a brief way what we just did. Um, that is going through the daily versus the yearly. But God did raise up a people, and I call it God's partners, in the beginning of the process. That's what the Advent Movement is all about. And if you think of it, of Christ's disciples, this was way back at the spring festivals when Passover was just completed and Pentecost had not yet happened. Christ's own disciples, how in touch were they with these two principles? Which principle had motivated them to a large degree? What was, the, what was their favorite topic of discussion? Who invented that principle? Do you see how if God's own people are contaminated still with the temporary principle, it blocks them from understanding what God's doing, and they are headed for a disappointment and uh, the need for cleansing. And we know out of that, that shaking that they went through, one of them committed suicide, and the rest of them were in hiding. You know the story. And Jesus has to come to them, and what does he do? He gives them a Bible study. And he shows them in all the Bible the things concerning who? Himself. It's all about Jesus. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. If we understand it properly. And he basically said to these survivors, do you see now what principle this is all based on? It's about humbling yourself, not exalting yourself. It's about giving, not taking. Will you join me in the witness? And what do they say? Yeah, they would. And, I mean, just think what happened. Within, within 40 days, he went back to heaven Ten days later, what happens? They're in one place in one accord, which had never happened before. In other words, they had processed all these... When you spend three and a half years trying to be number one, how many toes have you stepped on? <laughs> Do you think they had some confessions to make and in reconciliation? And then they're in one place in one accord, and then the Holy Spirit can empower a witness of the genuine principle of truth exalting the cross, exalting Jesus Christ, and hiding the human beings. And that's the story. And that, that to me, if we can understand the disciples and what they went through, then perhaps we'll understand in a, in a, in a simple way what our complex Adventist history is going to show us and what our need is. So that's, that's where we are. And we come over to the picture of the beginning of the Advent movement. Okay, page three. We're going to be looking, I've given you pictures here as we move through the timeline of 27 individuals. I'm, I'm going to name a few more. It's just not the ones that we've highlighted and what we've done in the past. Uh, perhaps we need to highlight some more people. But we focused particularly on the first generation ones, even though some of the 27 were born after the passing of the time, after 1844. And as we'll see, uh, not all of these 27, um, even though they were all involved with the movement and God used them in some way, not all of them stayed with it. 
And that's something else you have to come to grips with. Can God use a person and then something happens and he can't use them anymore? No. Does that say anything about their eternal destiny? Not necessarily. Uh, they could still be saved for eternity, but he can't use them anymore because of their limitations or whatever else. So let's leave that with God. Uh, sometimes we want to know, uh, are we going to be saved or not? Well, sometimes we don't know. We leave it with God. Sometimes we do know because we've been told. But this is the picture that we have. Uh, we're going to look at six messages. And I'd like to actually, can I erase this? This is our summary. Uh, I'd like to sort of summarize as we go through. Um, it's actually on page, um, we've got a summary here on page 15. But I'm going to build it as we go because I want to weave together three threads. And to do that, um, we've talked about the two principles, so let's put that up here. And it's all in the context of that. But we're going to look at some messages. We're going to look at something called landmarks. And we're going to look at something else called ministries. Okay. And the messages are actually Bible passages that are found in the Bible. Sometimes they're really clear, clearly a message because it's an angel flying through heaven proclaiming something. Sometimes it's a Bible passage that we won't, maybe didn't always think of as a message in that sense, but yet they are. Landmarks are, this is a surveying term. Anybody ever do surveying? Um, something that, when you mark the land, what are you marking the land for? Boundaries. Boundaries. This is your territory, right? And those are things that look at, look at Proverbs. It says, remove not the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. Well, you don't move your property line unless you want to get in trouble with your neighbors, um, right? So that's something you don't move once it's put in place. It's the idea of something that's st stable. There's other terms that, that speak about these. If you're a builder, when you build a building, you don't want it to move either, do you? <laughs> so you're talking about foundations and pillars and blocks and all these, all these construction terms. And there's one other term that's used to describe these, these principles, these concepts. They're called waymarks. And you know what those are. If you're going down the road, you're looking for signs all the time, right? Uh, marking the way. Do I want to go this way or that way? And if you move the sign, what's going to happen? Somebody, you might get lost. Somebody after you really will get lost if they're depending on the sign pointing the right way and it's pointing the wrong way. So these are all metaphors for the same idea, something that you, you don't want to change. Establish it and leave it. Ministries is just simply, what, what are you doing to carry these, to run with these? The last of our three-word motto is run, right? How do, you, how do you run with these? And these are basically the ways you run with them. So, starting with 1831, William Miller. By the way, on these 27 pioneers, we have 
27 videos online summarizing their lives. So go there if you want some more details. If you want, with those videos, I produced a two-page handout for each of the pioneers summarizing their life. If you want more details, we actually have periodicals that we published back in the 90s mostly. Uh, each issue was on a pioneer, and these are on PDF online for downloading. You can buy packets of these old back issues uh, through Light Bears if you're interested in that too. So, but I'm just giving you a, a tiny tidbit as to who these people are. William Miller, um, beautiful statement here when he finally, he was a deist. He believed that there was a God, but it was sort of a, a God that was not connected like the God of Job. You know, this is my servant. Have you seen him? And Satan says, you put a hedge about him. You know, you blessed him. And is God really involved with us that much? The deists don't believe that. It's sort of like he wound up the watch and he walked away and it's just running on its own. But he finally came through an experience to look at the Bible in a deeper way. And here's, here's what he said. Um, Aside from the Bible, I found I could get no evidence of the existence of such a Savior. And he talks about a being that, that was good and compassionate. You know, that type of a being. He couldn't find any evidence for that outside of the Bible. And he thought, that's strange because the Bible, why, why would a book that's not inspired be able to do that? Because he didn't think the Bible was inspired at the time. And then he said, I was constrained to admit that the scriptures must be a revelation from God as he studied them. And they became my delight. And in Jesus, I found a friend. That's William Miller. And that's why his simple Bible prophecy seminars and things he gave were so compelling because he was introducing people to his friend. And they, it, he was having people converted, not just to believe the prophecies, but they were being converted to Jesus, They're giving their lives to Jesus. And wrapped into this was the prophecies, which he's coming soon, right? <laughs> he's going to be here pretty soon. So that's William Miller. 1831 was when he began his public ministry, when God sort of twisted his arm, if you know that story. And that is also the beginning we can think of, in a sense, the first angel's message. First angel's message. Um, where do we find that? 14, 6, and 7. Okay, and the, the part he was focused on is what? The hour of his judgment is come. Okay, he's not so focused on worship him who made. That was not a major focus, even though I, I, believe, I think he believed in the creator, but he didn't make the Seventh-day Sabbath connection to that whole thing, which was later. So he began preaching that, and the landmark truth would be obviously the second coming. Um, and by the way, is that how do how do we know that this is still one of our landmarks? What's our name? <laughs> it's the Advent movement. What does the Advent mean? It's still it's we're still proclaiming that, right? Um, hopefully, we haven't lost the fact that this is not just Adventist is not just someone who believes Christ is coming. Adventist means he's coming soon. It's not, because a lot of churches believe in that Jesus is coming back, but it, they don't have the prophetic imperative of he's coming soon. It should really be one of the very first things of our 2007 fundamental beliefs. It should be one of the very first. Yeah. Instead, it's way down the line. 
They usually start back with the beginning of the, of the philosophy of God and Scripture and all of that too. But so there's another. There's different ways of ordering it, but that would be historically you'd put it number one. Yeah. So and what were they what were they using during those years to get the word out? They had a lot of meetings going on, and again, that's we still use those. We're using it right now. We're having a meeting, right? I came from somewhere, you came from somewhere, and we're meeting. And that's what they did. But if you can't go to where somebody is or they can't come to where you are, how do you get them the message? Well, you can, you can write it out and publish it and print it and mail it, right? And of course, with the new technology, how can we publish? We can put it through the electronic you know, waves to go wherever they go. So that's what, what there are. And come by our, our exhibit. We have, a, we have the memoirs of William Miller, okay? This, this man. Um, if you want to read his whole story, that'd be another way of learning about him. 1838. Um, this is seven years later. There's a lot of details of the story. We're just sort of hitting the highlights here. Josiah Litch comes along. And he was a Methodist Episcopal church preacher. He accepts the second coming and begins to proclaim it. To start with, you can see there's quite a few years there in the 1830s. Miller's just traveling around, invitations to churches, doing some writing. The late 1830s, they're publishing some of his lectures, and it begins to spread. And late 1830s, it really begins to take off. Litch, um, in looking at the prophecies of Revelation, Revelation chapter 9, the trumpets, he they had already began to have a method of interpreting prophecy. Miller had 14 rules of Bible interpretation. And following these rules of interpreting the Bible, they were able to understand the year-day principle, all the time prophecies, and a lot of these other, how to interpret the symbols of the Bible, to know when it is symbols and not symbols, those principles. And he came with an understanding that the Ottoman Empire was going to come to its end before, we didn't mention this about Miller, Miller did not predict a specific date. He just said sometime in the year 1843 to 44, that Jewish year, you know, it's going to happen then. Um, Before that time, Litch said, oh, something's going to happen to the Ottoman Empire. If we understand those principles of interpreting, something's going to happen to that in in terms of another time prophecy. And everyone looking on, not everyone, but a lot of people said, if that happens in 1840, then Miller's principles must be valid. And when it happened, a thousand infidels became believers. Huge impact. It's much bigger than we realize. Um, So that's Litch's um, point that we want to emphasize. Next year, 1839 we have a series of other men that we wanted to highlight accepting the message there. Joseph Bates, we have his autobiography. In fact, there's a, there's a narrated version of the autobiography. You can download for free or buy the CD if we want to listen to the book. He was involved with temperance work already as a sea captain. He accepted the message of the second coming. And Joshua Himes, Bates lived in Massachusetts. Himes was in Boston area. Himes was actually, a, he wasn't gray with this gray beard then. He was a young guy. Um, 
1839, he invited Miller come to my church and give a lecture. Miller did, and he said to Miller, do you believe what you're preaching? And Miller said, I wouldn't be preaching if I didn't believe it. And he says, why aren't you, why aren't you sp spreading it more? And Miller said, I'm doing all I can. And Himes, in essence, said, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> and he became his publisher and his promoter. And they were literally, they were publishing a daily newspaper being sold on the streets of New York City within a few years. They were wanting to get the word out. Wanting to get the word out. It, it just, it took off with Himes. Um, Samuel Snow comes along. He was one of the infidels that became a believer looking at the prophecies and understanding how that, how that worked. Page four. 1840, the Harmon family in Maine uh, accepts the Millerite message. And, of course, the Harmon family we highlight because of the one daughter named Ellen. Uh, she's 13 years old at the time that her family accepts the message. So she's... A lot of these, if we're looking at the pioneers, they were... Uh, they got involved with the movement. They were, they were early teens or late teens and early 20s when they began to run with this thing. Next year, a fellow by the name of James White, who, if you look at it, he's how old? 41? He's 21. In 1841, he's 21. Because I have the days of their life beside their picture. So he's 21 years old. He accepts the message. He was a teacher. We've got his autobiography published, Life Incidents if you're interested in that. Um, he becomes, he gets a burden to go out and preach as he'd been a school teacher. He begins to preach and a thousand people are converted under his preaching. He's not just preaching prophecy. He, he's, it's a revival that's taking place. With his preaching, people are giving their lives to Jesus. And so that's, that's there. Um, Charles Fitch, Presbyterian Church. So you can see these are from different churches, Right? Harmons were Methodists. James White was the Christian church. This is a Presbyterian. Um, he begins to preach. So more and more, this is being proclaimed by people of influence. 1842, the very next year, a former Methodist preacher, George Storrs, accepts it. He's going to be noted because already he's studying into the Bible teaching, which is going to come out in some, a little bit later in a, in a significant way that when you die, you're dead, right? What's the state of man in death? Uh, wages of sin is death. What, type, what is that? You know, do you have consciousness in that? Um, is there a natural immortality in, our, in, our, in the way God created us? Or are we dependent upon him for life? You know, he wrote some excellent material on that, and it was already beginning to percolate through the Advent movement. Not everyone's accepting it. Uh, obviously. We highlight the same year William Farnsworth. Well, he was a farmer. And this just shows you an example of someone who they don't become a administrator, um, they, but they are running with the message. He built the first um, building where there were Advent believers that were keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. That whole, that whole thing happened around his community. They weren't calling themselves Seventh-day Adventists because that didn't exist. But they were beginning to understand that. And we'll find out uh, later who, who that came in with. He actually ended up having 22 children. Not the same wife. He had two wives and each had 11. Which uh, he, had a, he had a big family. And a lot of workers went into the movement because of his godly influence 
William Farnsworth. Um, there's a book entitled William and His 22. <laughs> okay. Um, we highlighted him too. 43 next year, O.R.L. Crozier, another teacher like James White, he accepts the, the message of Jesus coming. And in the same town of New York, in that area of New York, a, a farmer by the name of Hiram Edson, he accepts it. And um, also a 14 year old young fellow by the name of Jane Andrews, that year of 1843. That's the year. The beginning of, of, the, of that year was when Jesus was supposed to come, right? Sometime during 43 to 44, like the spring of 43 to the spring of 44. Well, the spring of 44 comes and Christ doesn't arrive. And that's actually called the first disappointment, um, the spring of 44. And I've given you references for that under 1844. And they're trying to figure out what's happening, you know, what's going on, where are things headed. And in the summertime, because Christ had not come by that spring, a lot of the churches began to close their doors to the message and actually expel from their membership anybody who's believing in this message of Christ's coming. And that's when they were led to proclaim, begin to proclaim the second angel's message. Summer of 44. And what is the second angel? Where is it found? Revelation 14, verse 8. What does it say? Babylon is fallen. In rejecting the message of Christ's coming, they felt this, the Christian churches had experienced a significant spiritual fall. Okay, that was their immediate understanding as to why to proclaim it at that point. Um, obviously, I think as we look at that, that will expand bigger and bigger and bigger. By the way, um, when it says Babylon has fallen, what historical event is that alluding to? Old Testament times. Was there a Babylon? Yes. Did it fall? Yes. What chapter do we find that in? Daniel. You should know the Bible like you know the streets of your city. Okay? Five. Daniel 5. Excellent. It's, we call it Belshazzar's Feast. We should call it the Fall of Babylon. Was Daniel there? Did he have a message? Did he have actually some things he had to translate? What were the two principles? He said to Belshazzar, your father Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, God gave him a kingdom. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar's heart? He became proud and lifted up. And what did God do with Nebuchadnezzar? He humbled him. And he acknowledged the God of heaven, who is also the humble God, by the way. God doesn't want us to be humble, and he's not. He is. Christ said, I am meek and lowly. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he said to Belshazzar, but you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. He was responsible for his grandfather's history. And it was because of the pride of Babylon and Belshazzar that Babylon fell. Pride goes before the fall. Was, did Daniel go down with Babylon? No. Daniel survived the fall. What might that say to us? Will there be people at the end time Babylon when it falls that will survive the fall? 
will they also be proclaiming the two principles and calling people to get on the rock <laughs> get out of the building built on sand you know get on the rock it's, it's an amazing parallel we need to understand that so that's the second angel's message began to be proclaimed but as the summer went on they still were figure, trying to figure out what happened with the times you know and along came Samuel Snow in August of 44 and presented a study he had done and it was on the evidences that pointed to the fall of that year. Remember we said the fall festivals, those yearly festivals? The spring ones were related to Christ's first coming. The fall festivals were related to the transition at the end, which includes the second coming. And the fall festival that deals with the cleansing of the sanctuary was what festival? Day of Atonement. And that year they had found out when it was going to fall, what, what day it was going to be on. And what was that? October 22. And that became, that, that's the seventh Jewish month, by the way. Seventh Jewish month is when the uh, Day of Atonement is. That became the seventh month movement, or as it's also called, the Midnight Cry. And if you want to read some amazing descriptions of this movement, what Bible passage is it based on, by the way? Matthew at midnight the cry went out behold the bridegroom coming where is that parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25 okay I think it's 1 to 13 something like that um, so this be, this was like a tidal wave Ellen White describes this is like a, have you ever seen pictures of tidal waves it went into the remotest villages she said there's been no movement since the days of the apostles that has been as free from human imperfection than was this movement. When she had her first vision, the vision was of one of those metaphors of, of a path, a journey metaphor, you know, a path going to heaven. At the beginning of the path, what was there? A bright light that shone all the way along the path. And the angel said, what was the bright light? It's a midnight cry. This is how important this is, the beginning, how God is moving at that point. Um, did they understand even then what the bridegroom and the wedding was all about? No. They thought he was coming to, to get his bride, but he was going into the wedding to receive a kingdom after which he would come and get his bride. So that was not understood, but yet it was a Holy Spirit-guided movement, the midnight cry. Okay, um, let's see how much we can get done in the next minute because we're about to do for a break here. During that time... Our friend Charles Fitch was baptizing people. They were being converted. It was getting to be a late summer, early fall in New England. And he was baptizing, baptizing, and he got pneumonia and he died. But his wife said, Jesus is coming on October 22. There's no reason to mourn. They were actually expecting him to come. That's the first death we're going to look at. We're going to, we're going to go through a whole series of deaths in this outline, 80-year outline, and that's going to be part of the story too. Well, October 22 comes and what happens? Christ didn't show up on earth. And that was the passing of the time. They called it the great disappointment. But unbeknownst to them, where, did, where had Jesus gone? He had, he had gone into that final phase of his ministry that the sanctuary pictured as on the Day of Atonement. And later on, Ellen White would say, 
when he went into the most holy place, he sent an angel from heaven to earth with the next message. Third angel's message. Okay? So this begins, this is Revelation 14. What are the verses? 9 to 12. So, with that, we've come down to really the beginning of the Advent movement's portion that deals with who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. Even though there's no name for us then, and this is what really begins to define the group that comes out of the Advent movement that have an understanding and we'll look at the evidence of how much we do or don't understand it, which is another question. I'll give you some statements from our own history as to how much do we really understand these. You know, if we're Daniel translating the handwriting, how can you translate something if you don't understand what you're translating, right? You may have a limited understanding. It may not be all wrong. But again, there's some elements of it that uh, we need to understand even better than we do. But again, as I like to say, this midnight cry was about the bridegroom, right? Who's the bridegroom? It's all about Jesus. We've got to track with Jesus. Where is he? What is he doing? Um, the genuine Jesus in the most holy place, what, is he, what, what business is he in? What, what is the focus that he has right now? Can we join him in that here on earth and work with him and cooperate with him I submit that's our mission. That's our identity. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.